So the first time we were, we felt violated, but we didn't necessarily blame Facebook. And now we're blaming Facebook because now they know it's a problem and they're still letting it happen. Data and privacy, GDPR, the Detour Act, it's getting crazy. And in this inbound interview, that's what we're going to talk about. Let's go ahead and find out about our guests, who they are, what they do, and where they do it. I'm Darren Reffitt. I'm the president of Marketing Intelligence, which is a consulting firm we're headquartered out of Wilmington, Delaware. I consult primarily on the B2B side, working with companies, uh, including InsurTech firms, uh, printing print mail, customer experience, helping them to optimize their messaging for their buyer, as well as to look at, at the end result, how to improve the experience with their customers uh, in the B2B and B2C space. Darren, the reason that you're here is because of your inbound title. There was a lot in your title and a lot in your talk. So why don't you let the sprocketeers, the viewers, the listeners know what your talk was about and the foundational pieces that we need to understand to carry on the conversation today. Sure. So, so at the beginning of my session, I talk a lot about relationships and talk a lot about how your relationship when you, let me put you on an experience. You walk into a coffee shop, you're on your headset, you're doing a meeting with someone from work, you're grabbing a quick cup of coffee and you decide you know, to, to order a food, you go to the end of the counter, the barista you know, is making your stuff, you're talking about a meeting you're gonna have, uh, you happen to mention the company you work for, the barista calls out your first name and through all this you make eye contact with a few people, you leave. And three hours later, you get a message on Facebook where someone says, hey, I saw you at Starbucks. And, you know, I heard you mention the company you worked for. So I went to LinkedIn and I researched to find out who you were. And then I looked you up on Facebook and it looks like we have some similar interests. And I'd really, really like to know, um, you know, if you'd like to go grab a drink. That's not something most of us would find flattering. Most of us would feel very violated by that overall experience, right? But we as marketers are doing that all the time. We're taking information that gets aggregated about you from other sites you visit and other places you've been, anything we can get through big data or small data, which is something that tends to get ignored, the value of really small data versus big data. And we take that and we put it together to use data as a weapon against our customer. So most people don't feel bad when they go to Williams-Sonoma and look at a product and they get that popped up on their Facebook. But when it gets really personal and you start, start offering things like drugs that I happen to be on, a competitor drug that I have never shared with you that I'm on that drug, but now you're offering me a competitive product because you've aggregated that data, that feels very violating. And so customers are starting to fight back, which is why we have so many privacy laws coming up like the Detour Act in California. Darren, as I listen to you talk, I think about the violation of the data and the violation of trust. Can you talk to us about the importance of the data and trust moving forward in the digital space? I think the there's an instant lack of trust. There's an instant lack of respect. And I think we've all felt the experience of having a data breach where your your name is stolen by uh, some person in another country and and you know we feel some compassion for the vendors that we work with because we understand you know hopefully they did their best in many cases they don't but there's billions of dollars of impact in in what happens with those data breaches but when it turns out that it was the company itself 
that was violating you. Facebook recently is a great example of this. You know, even though, you know, certain firms that are no longer allowed to do to do business with Facebook are out there. There are others that are using that same stuff and it's turning out that Facebook isn't protecting us. So the first time we were we felt violated, but we didn't necessarily blame Facebook. And now we're blaming Facebook because now they know it's a problem and they're still letting it happen. That happens no matter where you are. And I mentioned earlier small data. And I think that's why small data is so important. And small data, for those who have not heard that term, because we tend to think of big data, the stuff we can get from everywhere else, small data is all that stuff that I choose to share with you. If I give you my birthday information and you offer me a birthday offer, that's amazing. If I didn't give you my birthday offer and you start hitting me up with offers based on it, I'm going to wonder why you're using that data. It's all about who I choose to share information with and how it gets used against me. I'm not going to trust a firm, and especially if someone starts selling my data to someone else and I can figure that out. I actually have a friend who signs up for all kinds of warranties and mailing lists using different names. And he's spent decades now just following where those names have gone from where he shared them to other organizations to try and track exactly where people are selling them. Now, he's a data geek like us, but still. I have to say, shame on us as marketers. But Darren, I'm super curious if there is a safe space. You think of kind of like the comfort zone of when you're face-to-face with somebody, but in the digital space, is there a safe space when it comes to the use of small and large data? So I think it's contextual. In your example, if someone's getting closer to you when you're in your personal space zone, if they're leaning in because they're trying to keep their voice down, it's going to come very different than if they lean in every single time and they have bad breath and there's all these other ancillary things going on, right? So I think it's a matter of, let me, let me give you one of the examples that I've heard that, that is a great use of customer data. Domino's, whose stock price has just skyrocketed over the last 10 years or so. One of the things they did with their data is they turned around and they looked at the fact that despite having a menu offering that's exorbitant, Something like 85%, and I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but something like 85% of people when they order pizza, order the exact same thing every single time they order pizza, because that's what they like. Well, there's an insight that's worth using. So instead of sending me offers for all these different things I don't want, if I'm one of those people, I can get a very targeted offer. They even turned it into an app where I could literally open the app and order pizza no matter where I am, because I always order that pizza, right? Some other examples that I think of. The airport experience, because we all know flying and travel is one of the most glamorous and, and you know, casual, relaxing things you can do these days. The airlines could very easily look at the data on their passengers to determine specific behaviors. Do I always like a certain type of, of window? Do I always board at the end of the flight because I don't bring carry-on luggage and I don't want to deal with all those people, so I'm always the last one on the plane? Or even worse, am I someone who doesn't want to pay an extra bag, but I always end up bringing one on and checking it at the gate? Well, there's places where you could make that experience even easier and be like, you know what, for this subset who's going to check anyway, why make them drag it through security all the way to the gate and take our gate agent time doing this? Why don't we just extend that offer to them? Why don't we offer something special for our passengers who are going to board last and invite them to grab a cocktail because we know they're going to be boarding in the last 10 seconds to clear some of the clutter for all of the other customers that are boarding at the gate. There's all these things that you could think about ways to use data there that if you tell me, hey, we noticed this about you, I'm not going to feel violated because you're using it for my benefit. As opposed to, hey, every time I book a, a, book a, a, a rental car, for example, 
Hertz asked me, is this for business or pleasure? And in the back of my mind, I'm wondering if that's going to change my price. Why are you asking me that question? I don't have trust with you. There were some great things in that last section. Consistency, consumer emotion. Talk to us about how all of that that we just talked about really leans into the trust of the consumer and that importance. Well, isn't customer experience in general about making the customer try and feel special and like you care about them? So I think that's where um, what I was saying earlier about like using the data for good and not using it as a weapon that really plays into this whole idea of how do we, what do we reward in our organizations? We generally reward people who use data to figure out how to reduce costs or increase revenue. So that's the way people are looking at the data. They're looking at those two things. And so what I would suggest is let's start thinking about the, the effect of using that data in a way that makes them go, wow, this was beneficial to me. They, they really looked at me as a, as a person, even though we're never going to look at, at you as one person, but we're going to see you as a subset of American Airlines or, or Delta, whatever, and figure out how you're behaving. Because as long as you're using it to my benefit, it's not going to feel violated. A great example of that, you know, you think about shopping experiences where we found out that some organizations are charging more people for a plane ticket than others or for um, on a, an e-commerce site like Amazon, I'm seeing one price and you're seeing something else. And that's driven these laws like the Detour Act in California. A lot of people aren't aware that the Detour Act, at least the last version I saw right before inbound, actually had a requirement in it that you couldn't A-B test someone unless you were going to get their consent. Can you imagine what that would do to our, our models in marketing? But you have to understand why it's happening is people are realizing this data is being used against them. Well, hey, if you're going to A-B split test two different prices, you need to get my permission to do that. You know, you're not allowed to use all this other data to do that. They don't care if you're A-B split testing an orange button or a green button, but it would still impact our ability to do that going forward in California. That could just completely break our marketing models. And I guess the point is, it's our fault because we've been using the data as a weapon and customers know it, you know, customers know their data has value. Customers know that when they share it, it's at risk with all these data breaches. So if they're sharing it, it's a, it, they're, they're extending trust. And just like any relationship, if I share a secret with you as a coworker, that first time I'm extending a little bit of trust and I want to see what happens with it. You break that trust, you've pretty much prevented me from ever trusting you again. So if it's our fault, and I know that it is, and we can't go back in time, or maybe we can try to go back in time, but are there some tips, tricks, hacks, or ways that we should be using this data moving forward? So have you ever read a, a website's privacy policy that, that was simple and easy to read and engaging? I mean, I could say yes, but there are none of those on the internet. <laughs> I, I think that would be that would be a great first step is to just very clearly disclose how you're doing stuff and turn around and let people know in clear language what you're doing, how you're using it. Don't try and turn your privacy policy into a 28-page document that no one reads. And I'm saying this as someone who has never read the iTunes agreement that I've agreed to for 15 years. I, I think a great first step is transparency, really letting people understand what you're doing without a whole bunch of, you know, there's going to be some legalese required, but there's a lot, there are some great privacy policies out there that just say, here's what I'm going to do with your data in very simple five sentence words. You know, here's what I'm going to do with you. 
So I think that's a great step. And then, like I said, you know, turning around and finding ways to use the data for their benefit and making sure they understand that's what you're doing with it is a great way to do that. I, great example, Walt Disney. I don't know if you're a Disney fan. I see Marvel figures behind you, but I'm a huge fan of Disney. I'm a member of the Vacation Club. And I, when the Magic Band, I know that Magic Band tracks me everywhere I go in the park. I also know that that Magic Band allows them to target me with, um, you know, get me to buy more merchandise. It allows me as part of a group for them to say, hey, there's a big cluster over here. We need to make sure we get some food carts over there because there's a lot of people there. So they're using it for their operational benefit, but I'm getting something in return for that. I'm getting that experience of my name appearing on posters on rides and the city and state I'm from, or, you know, my daughter getting a, uh, having a princess walk up and actually know her name and call her by name because there's a little earpiece in her ear that says, hey, the little girl in front of you's name is Jessica, you, you know, and it's her birthday tomorrow. Walk up and wish her happy birthday. And that's magical. So I'm willing to trade, hey, you're going to get benefit from this and I'm going to benefit from this. It's that one-sided relationship that I think we need, just need to start thinking, you know, how can this data be used for the benefit of the customer, make them aware that that data is beneficial to them and give them a great experience based on it. It's funny with your story, I realize there's a fine line between magical and creepy. So what are the ways that we can think of the conversations we're having, the channels that we're having them in and a way to understand if we're being magical or leaning into that creepy side and what to do and not to do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's all about customer journey mapping and really customer profiling are both big parts of figuring out the answers to this question. But where we look at data and, and channel optimization from, from my presentation was thinking about things like the mortgage experience and just how magical the mortgage experience is. It's right up there with flying. So I just went through a refinance. And so there's the, the process of trying to get rates online, wanting to compare rates. There's a place where when I'm sharing information to get a rate, I wonder how it's going to be used against me. But then I turn around and I want to track rates and I want to ask Alexa for information on rates for the day. And, and very few banks are enabling me to very quickly, while I'm chopping an onion in the kitchen, say, hey, you know what? What's the rate today on a 30-year fixed rate? I can't get that kind of information. So there's a place where looking at that journey, as I went through that refinance process, there were so many places where I was like, they're making this as hard as possible for me to do business with them. Not that I would want to use Alexa, which I'm a big proponent of the value of voice and how it's going to change the world. I really do think it's going to be the next, um, the next web 2.0 or the next app-based economy issue to come up. And not enough people are looking at voice uh, as, a, as a channel. There are places where it would make perfect sense. Do I want to type? my entire, or do, do I want to say my entire mortgage application to Alexa and have to fix her spelling errors? Absolutely not. But do I want to be able to very quickly say, you know, Alexa, ask um, Wells Fargo what the status is on my application or, or ask Wells Fargo if my appraisal came in. This is going to become the expectation in the future is that, you know, I'm not going to have to open an app. I'm not going to have to go on the web. I'm just very quickly going to be able to ask devices for information. And when we start figuring out where that makes sense and optimizing for it, it's going to really change the interactions with people. I don't know if it'll get to the point of magical, but it'll become easy. And once I enable my favorites, think of the stickiness to that. 
there's a way to really get to get traction with your customer and be part of their life because in order you know in order for me to get that set up with a new bank it's not just a matter of changing my account it's going to have to learn all my preferences it's going to have to have that app connected it's just one more thing that's going to make me stick with with a vendor I love that we're talking about ease for humans and optimizing processes. Darren, what are some of the hurdles or potholes that you've seen people have got stuck in historically? Uh, I, I think people get hung up the most when they're doing journey mapping and personas on either overthinking it or thinking it's going to be easy. And it's really not. There's nothing worse than a group of people sitting in a room talking about, you know, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll do this because this will guide the customer in the right way without getting the voice of the customer involved or having someone. I, I will share with you, I spent my first um, 10 years in marketing in the marketing world, uh, very ingrained, and, and then moved out into the field doing um, sales training and working one-on-one -on -one with tellers in the branch. And at one point I started talking about something and one of the branch managers was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're no longer on Mount Olympus. You can't just hand down marketing from the guides. You need to understand how it actually affects us. One of the things was we always put the, you know, the minimum balance and the monthly fee if you didn't maintain it at the very bottom because we didn't want the customers to think about that. And they were like, do you know how much harder that makes my job? Because that's the only thing the customer cares about. And I get your sales process is trying to say, oh, let's minimize that. But you're ignoring the fact that the customer wants to know that information and making my job harder and making them feel like we're being sneaky. That was really enlightening to me. And ever since I've always taken the view that any marketing material and anything I develop for a customer needs to get the salesperson that's hands-on with them. So that's one thing is make sure sales is involved because sales has a perspective on the customer that marketing can tend to be very theoretical about. Um, and the other thing is focus groups are amazing. That you know, Trying to develop, especially if you're a large organization, Trying to develop a, a customer journey without getting the customers to talk about it or evaluate it or think about it is, is just not going to get you where you need to be. Darren, how do we fight assumptions and perceptions of the data that we need versus the data that we want? And how do we find that fine line of truly what gets us the best results as far as marketers and sales professionals moving forward? I would say the answers are different. And, and ironically, I think the issue with sales is, once again, it's about creating trust. Because I don't think there's, in a lot of organizations, there's not a lot of trust between sales and marketing. They often have competing goals. They have competing priorities. Um, sales and marketing are trying to take credit for the same leads. So I think it's about making sure that you're establishing trust when you're talking to sales, that you're, you're really trying to achieve something that's going to be benefit both of you. As far as talking to customers, I think the biggest thing you can do is make sure that you're using an external firm. Uh, because when you're talking about focus groups, when you're talking about surveys, surveys are a little bit easier because there's still some transparent, some, um, some anonymity there. But when you're doing a focus group, I've seen some focus groups just absolutely destroyed by the fact that the person has a vested interest in the outcome and starts trying to guide the conversation to be the answer they were looking for at the beginning. And if all you're looking for is for someone to confirm what your, your presupposition, then you might as well just skip the focus group process altogether. 
It's funny, my mind starts to think about this right here. Don't dirty your own data, and that's almost what seems to be happening. But Darren, is there something else or other things that we need to know as marketers with this data, privacy, trust conversation that we're having moving forward? A lot of what I spoke about at Inbound was really around the idea of looking at new emerging technologies and how easy they are now, especially with systems like HubSpot to implement. Text messaging, a great example. There's a lot of firms out there that can enable you to blast out text messages. Um, but are you able to respond? Are you taking advantage of technologies now that let you do it? Because think about that customer experience. I text you an offer. You respond with a question back. And the question back gets a response of, oh, I'm sorry, this is an unmanned mailbox. Well, okay, the technology is there now for you to be able to send your text messages from the same 800 number you use or the same toll number that you use that's taking in your inbound calls. Make things as seamless as possible for your customer. Make it that you're communicating via one number and I can hit call and reach a customer service agent. Or make it that I can respond to that text message and it goes into a central portal that allows your customer service agents. And think about how that increases optimization for your actual CSRs. Because if you're, if you're using a portal that aggregates all these messages, you don't have to have someone out on Facebook checking Facebook Messenger for messages and um, looking, at, uh, looking at text messages in one channel and looking at uh, Snapchat or Twitter on another or web chat. All of that, can, there's tools out there that can easily aggregate them into one place and just simplify the process. So I think it's a lot about, um, you know, we were talking earlier about what can be steps that we can take. Really looking at existing processes that are, I would say, now antiquated, even though they're three years old. Uh, just ways that the technology has evolved to simplify the process and make it easy for the customer to do business with you. Look, Darren, there's been a lot of ideas. So I guess my question for you is, how do we get started? What's the one, two, three? Where do we go from here? Wait, was my inbound presentation supposed to offer concrete ideas? Oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, if I were if I were only walking out of this conversation with three ideas, I would say one: if you haven't developed a customer journey or reevaluated your customer journey and how it aligns with the channels that you are or could be doing business with, if you're using HubSpot, if you're using some of the other you know um, marketing automation tools, the APIs are there, the tools are there, the third parties are there for you to probably step back and reevaluate how you're communicating and, and things you can do to implement and make it easier. Think about, think about how these tools are all, are all guiding your journey, right? So that would be my second one is think about, okay, you're advertising on Facebook, you have a website, you're doing retargeted advertising. Are all of those being done in a vacuum? Or so if I'm doing retargeted advertising to bring you back to my website and all of a sudden you have a question, you know, are you, are you going to have to go find the 800 number on your website or are you going to be able to click a chat button and talk to someone right there? Or if you're putting up a Facebook ad, do you manage a Facebook messenger account that's actually going to answer questions? Because I can just ask that question very easily in that ad. Get people where they're actually at and make sure that as you're looking at your customer journey, you're figuring out, okay, where are the interactions and how could they be easier? Because I just think a lot of people are still stuck in 2010 technology in a 2020 world. I would say the third thing is start thinking about voice. 
Um, it's, it's going to change the world. It's going to be there. You know, a, a recent study uh, done out of Boston showed that just 3.8% of businesses are actually offering correct information when they do voice search, right? So that means that if I'm asking Alexa, if I'm asking Google Home for hours that I'm open, if I'm asking for uh, information on whether or not credit cards are accepted, if I'm asking um, information on where I can find the menu or if a certain product is sold, that information isn't there or worse, it's outdated. So um, I know there's rest a restaurant down the street that sometimes is open Sundays, sometimes isn't. I'm sure they're not updating their Google listings each week to make sure that that stuff is accurate. But that creates an experience where if I'm trusting these voice tools to give me that information, if I'm not managing it in Google, if I'm not managing it in Facebook and Yelp and other places, then I'm getting incorrect information. And unfortunately, that is just going to mean that in the future, I'm not going to be going to your restaurant. I'm going to be going to one that is always giving me correct data. Now's the time to kind of optimize for that stuff. Because if you wait until that tipping point where it becomes prevalent and the, the channel of choice, you're going to be late to the party. You're going to be the next borders who's not in business anymore because I didn't adjust to e-commerce and digital books quickly enough and waited until everyone else was already on. Darren, if people have questions, if they want to connect with you, if they want to dive deeper into this conversation for their company, how can they get in touch with you? So yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, um, my contact information, I'm available via phone, via email. I'm also on Twitter at DMRefit. I do tweet out a lot of um, you know, I, I appreciate you including me in the series, but there's people who are more brilliant at all at this of this stuff than I am. And I do have a tendency of tweeting out a lot of other people's information uh, just because I find great articles all the time. All right, Sprocketeers, here's the deal. There's a lot in there. Hopefully you got some value out of this inbound interview. Pay attention to your data, what you are asking, what you shouldn't ask, how you are being magical, or maybe whew, how you're being creepy. But until the next glorious inbound interview, make sure you're focused on being a happy, helpful, humble human that isn't being weird in their data, and make sure you're doing some happy hub spotting.